I invite you to take your Bibles and turn once again to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and Lord willing, we'll finish up, uh, we'll finish up chapter 13, looking at verses 8 through 13, and um, I don't want to make any promises, but I can almost assure you that we'll be little more brief than we were last Sunday. I didn't realize until after I got home to upload that on Sermon Audio just how long-winded that was. Um, But I I really, I wanted to get through all those attributes of love, and I didn't want to have to break it up. And I was talking with a friend this week, and he asked how services went on Sunday, and I said, well, I said, uh, I, I got a lot of great feedback, and even throughout the week, a lot of individuals said that that the chapter help them with things they were going through. And he says, well, brother, he says, don't get, don't get too happy about that. He says, your people may just be practicing the biblical admonition to bless those who persecute you. So I thought that was very encouraging. Well, we'll, we'll finish up this chapter and look at verses 8 through 13, but let me read all 13 verses and read the chapter in its entirety, but our text will be verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. One of the fundamental teachings of Scripture is that we as Christians must have our priorities and our aspirations in the right place and in the right order. We ought not store up for ourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. We ought not first to seek prosperity in this world, but we ought first to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We ought not to be more concerned with 
humanitarian and charitable endeavors than we are in spreading the gospel of salvation. We ought not be so focused on the temporal that we neglect eternal things. This is the lesson that Paul is seeking to teach the Corinthians in this chapter. As you know, the Corinthians were obsessed with spiritual gifts. And specifically, they were obsessed with the gifts that were the most flamboyant and ostentatious. The Corinthians wanted the gifts that would make them seem impressive in the eyes of others. But Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 13 that their priorities were all wrong. They are obsessed with spiritual gifts, but what they have failed to realize is that those gifts are things that will pass away. They will come to an end. They won't have their spiritual gifts forever. Spiritual gifts are given for the present age of the church. And some of them were given for an even shorter period of time than that. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in this chapter is don't live your lives for gifts that will ultimately pass away. Live your life for something that never passes away, that never ceases, that never comes to an end. And of course, we know that he's referring to the grace of charity or the grace of Christian love. Charity and love are synonyms. They're interchangeable in this text. And last week, we looked at charity and its first place and charity and its fruits. And we saw that charity is to take the priority in the Christian life. And then we looked at this this description of charity that Paul gives in this chapter. But now we will look at the teachings of love in 1 Corinthians 13 in their broader textual and theological context. What, What does the grace of love have to do with the exercising of our spiritual gifts. That's what we we find in verses 8 through 13. So I want you to see, we we began this outline last Sunday, and um, we looked at the first two points of that outline, and uh, now we have two more points to finish up this chapter. So let's look, you could say first for today, or third overall, however you want to outline it in your mind. Verses 8 through 12, we see charity and its faultlessness. Charity and its faultlessness. Notice how Paul begins in verse 8 this beautiful phrase, Charity never faileth. This is the great contrast between charity and spiritual gifts. As Paul previously told us in verse 7, charity is a grace that endures. Not just endures, but tenaciously and perseverantly endures. It overcomes all opposition. It never passes away. Real love doesn't fall apart under pressure. But real love upholds us when that pressure is most intense. When a church comes under pressure, when you and your Christian life come under pressure, what will hold you and sustain you will not be how spiritually gifted you are. but It will be love will be charity. Notice Paul goes on in verse 8 and he fleshes this out for us. He says this, 
whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Now, however you want to take prophecies here, whether you, you see this exclusively as something that happened in the first century with, with the communication of new revelation, you know, the prophet in the church stands up, says, Thus saith the Lord, God spoke to me in this dream, this vision. If, if that's how you want to limit this, or if you want to uh, take a more puritanical view and say that that was prophecy, but there's also a sense in which preaching is prophetic. However you want to, to interpret it, the point is the same. Prophecies will fail. They will be done away with. I, I like the way Brian Borgman put it. There's coming a day in which I, as your pastor, will be gloriously out of a job. Amen. <laughs> People ask me what it's like to pastor a church, and I, I always tell them, well, the pay's not that great, but the retirement's out of this world. <laughs> There's coming a day in which I will no longer be the under-shepherd of your soul as your pastor because we will all be gathered into that one flock and we will all sit under the great shepherd himself. There's coming a day when you won't need me to preach the word of God to you because you'll be dwelling in the midst of the living word himself. Now, I really hope that there will still be preaching in heaven. And I, and I have a theory about it. So the way I see it, the angels have no idea what it's like to be redeemed. So someone, when we get to heaven, someone who's been redeemed needs to sit the angels down and preach a good sermon to the angels and what it means to be redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I hope that we still get to preach in heaven, but the fact of the matter is, even if we do, it certainly won't serve the same function that it serves in this age. Prophecy will cease. It will end. Church will not look the way it looks here. It will be an eternal, ongoing, continuous time of worship in heaven. But love will not cease. Love will not fail. So what's most important? That I preach really great sermons to you? Or that I love you? Well, if I love you, and I do, I trust you know that, then I will have a desire to preach to the best of my God-given abilities as a demonstration of that love. It's how I exercise my spiritual gift in love to serve the body. But if I have no love for you, then it doesn't matter how eloquent or charismatic I am in the pulpit, my preaching is worthless. Same goes for any spiritual gift. If, if, if you're exercising that spiritual gift for any other motivation than to lovingly serve the body, it's worthless. He goes on and he says, Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Well, you know that this was the favorite gift of the Corinthians. They, they loved the gift of tongues because of how exciting it was. And still today, there are many churches that make the gift of tongues an essential part of who they are as a church. In fact, some of them even make the gift of tongues a litmus test for who is and who is not filled with the Spirit. But Paul says, why would you orient your entire church around a gift that will inevitably cease? Whether you think the gift of tongues has already ceased, or whether you think 
that it hasn't ceased yet is beside the point. The point is, it will cease. That's the point. By the way, you know, we love to go to these chapters in 1 Corinthians and we love to debate continuationism and cessationism. That's not at all what Paul was trying to teach in these chapters. It wasn't even on his radar. His point is that it doesn't matter when you think it's going to happen. What matters is that it will happen. These gifts will cease. They will come to an end. The gift of tongues will come to an end. And if we build our church around the gift of tongues, we're building our church around something that is destined to end. So, you know what's better than having a church known for speaking in tongues? Having a church that's known for its love. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be speaking tongues with one another. But we will still be loving one another. Now, now full disclosure here, I do think you can make a biblical argument from these chapters that the gift of tongues, as it's presented in the New Testament, has ceased. uh, Because tongues in the New Testament is a revelatory gift whereby God communicates new revelation. And we know that revelation is finalized in Scripture. But that's not the point Paul is making here. It doesn't matter if you're a mild cessationist. I'd probably put myself somewhere in that category of mild cessationist. Or or if you're just a full-blown charismatic, it doesn't matter. The point is the same. Don't base your Christian life around a gift that will come to an end. Base it around a grace that never fails. Never fails. Then he says... Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And again, this is not referring to to intellectual knowledge. It's referring to the gift of knowledge. Remember he talked about in chapter 12, the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge. And he doesn't give us much of a definition for those gifts. So I think we better be careful about giving a, a, a firm definition for those gifts. It's pretty safe to say that those gifts have something to do with the reception of revelation, with the understanding of mysteries in the New Testament. But but whatever it is, God will bring it to a screeching halt. That's the point of this passage. So, in some sense, I guess everyone must be a cessationist in some sense, because the gifts are going to cease. There's no need for them in heaven. We have need for them here I don't want to jump ahead, but we have need for them here because we, we, we only know in part. We only prophesy in part. We don't have that which is perfect. One commentator says, spiritual gifts have a built-in obsolescence. Makes me think of a phone. You know, They, they, they build these $1,000 iPhones that are built to be obsolete in just a few years so that we all go out and buy the next one. Well, Spiritual gifts, I'm not comparing spiritual gifts to an iPhone, but I am saying that when God gave spiritual gifts, he, he gave them in such a way that from the very beginning, they were only supposed to serve a particular purpose in a particular period of time. They were given for this intermediate age of the church, but they have no need in that age to come. To put it this way, spiritual gifts are not like uh, an entrance ramp that takes you to the interstate. Spiritual gifts are a dead end road. They, 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 there's a lot of great, wonderful things on that road, but there's a dead end at the end of the road. Therefore, spiritual gifts cannot be the ultimate goal of the Christian life. 
the ultimate goal of the Christian life must be something that is everlasting. Well, what is that something that's everlasting? It's not the spiritual gifts that are given for a season, but love that is given for an eternity. That's Paul's point here. He's saying, you Corinthians, you're so obsessed with who's the most gifted and who has the most talent, who has the most skill, and you need to be obsessed with how can we love each other more. When the miraculous gifts of the Spirit come to an end, love will continue. And love, really and truly, is to be the thing that motivates and governs our spiritual gifts in the first place. So Paul goes on and he says in verse 9, he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. This is a description of this age, this age that you and I live in. What we know about God is so limited. It is so limited. What God has revealed about himself is so limited. And our ability to understand that revelation is so limited. God has revealed more than we have the capacity to understand, and what he has revealed is even limited. This, by the way, is a message that the Corinthians desperately needed to hear. It's a message that that churches and individuals who puff themselves up in pride desperately need to hear. The, The problem of the Corinthians was they thought they were so smart And that they had arrived to to this place of supreme knowledge. They knew more than anybody else in other churches. They, They had made it. And Paul says, you only know in part, and the part that you know, you don't really know as well as you think you do. Whoever your favorite Bible teacher is, only knows in part. John MacArthur only knows in part. John Piper only knows in part. R.C. Sproul only knows in part. I know, it's it's blasphemy, right? No, they only know in part. Mm -hmm. They're men. I only know a very small portion of what those guys know, so I really only know in part. Calvin Edwards only knew in part. They know a whole lot more now than they knew then. They only knew in part. Throughout redemptive history, so from when God started saving people, throughout redemptive history, God has progressively increased the clarity of his revelation. Okay, so we today have a clearer picture of God and who he is. We have more revelation than a believer who lived 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. What is the most basic form of revelation? Well, it's natural revelation, general revelation, nature. But it's also, what, the most cloudy picture of revelation. So you had prophets in the Old Testament who were much more clear than general revelation. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the minor prophets, they they would stand up and thus saith the Lord, wow, this is clear revelation. 
But then you read the book of Ezekiel and you think to yourself, is this really all that clear? (laughs) Well, in the New Testament, God increases the clarity of his revelation. You read Paul in the book of Romans and you say, yeah, this is a lot more easier to understand than Amos chapter 3, right? Because revelation is getting clearer and clearer as we move along. The spiritual gifts in the New Testament, the prophets of the New Testament, were more clear than their Old Testament counterparts. The complete written word of God is more clear than those temporary spiritual gifts. This is the clearest form of revelation that God has ever given and will ever give in this age. But listen very carefully. Even the Bible itself is not as clear as the revelation of God that we will receive in the age to come. What has God revealed in the Bible? The Bible contains the fullest revelation of who God is that mortal man has ever possessed. But even the Bible does not contain everything there is to know about God. Even the Bible is the tip of the iceberg. And underneath the water is an endless mass of knowledge about our God that we will spend all our eternities searching out. Now, the Bible is accurate and true and clear in all that it contains, but it is partial. It is partial. We know in part. And even though... Think about this, even though the Bible is partial, the greatest theological minds in the history of the world have only scratched the surface of the truth contained in the Bible. Now, these things ought not discourage you, but they should humble you. Just to think of how big and awesome and majestic our God is, how overwhelming He is, how immense He is. To to think that to think that he's given us this wonderful book, this, this wonderful book, which is our final absolute authority in this age, and, and all 66 books of the Bible in Old Testament and New Testament through a span of, of thousands of years, and, and all the truth and all the wisdom and all the knowledge that's in this, and yet you will spend your whole life, and you will never master this book. It's... I love how one man put it. The Bible is shallow enough for a babe in Christ to to wade in, but it's, it's deep enough for the most aged saint to dive in and never reach the bottom. And yet, there's coming a day in which we will have a revelation of God that will surpass anything we could ever imagine having in this age. Well, when does that happen? Paul tells us in verse 10. He says, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. We need to get a little theological to understand what Paul is saying here. What is that which is perfect? A lot of theology rides on how we understand that little phrase. What is the perfect? Let me give you three options and then tell you which one 
think Paul is referring to. Number one, there are some who say that the perfect is the completion of the canon of Scripture. That's actually what I was taught in Bible college. Uh, that, that is often associated with a, a very hardline cessationism of the spiritual gifts. And so they, they'll say that, that when John penned the, the last word of the book of the Revelation and the canon of Scripture was complete, all the spiritual gifts ceased right then because they, there was no longer any need for them. That's one option. There's a second option that teaches that the, the, the perfect is the maturing of the church out of a state of infancy. That's an interesting view, that in the, in the apostolic days, the church was kind of in this transitory period, and we don't really know exactly when, but at some point, after the ministry of the apostles, the church evolved into its, its mature stage that it's been in and will be in until Jesus comes. That's, that's viable. But there's a third view, and that is that that which is perfect refers to the eternal state, to the eschaton. Now, Jonathan Edwards does what a lot of preachers like to do. He can't decide between options two and three, so he argues that it's both. He argues that there's a twofold perfection and a twofold passing away. So he says that, that there was a maturing of the church after the first or second century, and there was a passing away of some of the spiritual gifts, but then at the end of the age, there's a final maturing and a final passing away. As much as I appreciate Edwards, I think that the most consistent position, and really the simplest position with this text, is just to see the perfect of verse 10 to be a reference to the eternal state, to the eschaton. When Paul says, when that which is perfect is come, Paul is talking about when this age is over, when this world as we know it comes to an end and we enter into that age to come. And that age to come will be ushered in at the second coming of Christ. So in verses 11 and 12, then Paul will now give two illustrations to prove this point. Notice with me in verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spake, as a child, I spoke as a child. Now, this is one of those verses that has been so abused and so ripped out of its context more times than we could count. Any of you ever heard someone preach from this verse and they used it as an exhortation for people to grow up and act more mature, you know? And you see someone acting immaturely and you say, well, when I was a child, I spake as a child, but when I became a... It's not at all what Paul's talking about. I, 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 I think people uh, do need to grow up and do need to get more mature, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's a classic example of what we would say is the right theology from the wrong text. Okay. Now, what, what, is, what is Paul illustrating in verse 11? This whole, when I was a child, I spake as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Childhood is the age of the imperfect. And when we talk about perfection here, remember that the word perfect has two meanings. Well, really, they're, it's the same meaning, kind of overlaps and from two angles. Oftentimes, when we think of perfection, we think of something that's flawless. But, but really, the word perfect, the, the root meaning of the word perfect is total completion. That, that's what that word really means. And of course, if something is flawless, it's complete. It's not lacking anything. But childhood is the age of the imperfect. Do you child a, a kid because he can't explain the doctrine of infralapsarianism? 
I mean, you go up to a six-year-old and say, come on, haven't you read Calvin's Institutes yet? No, of course you don't do that. You don't, we don't even do that with adults. <laughs> At least we shouldn't. Do, do you ridicule a toddler that can't tie his shoes? I mean, John's pretty good at taking his shoes off, but putting them on is not his strong suit right now. Do you degrade an eight-year-old that can't drive a car? Of course not. Because they're children. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a child. So when Paul says that this age is imperfect, he's not saying that that there's a deficiency in us. He's just saying that's the way it is in this age. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's so fascinating to watch John think about things. The way he examines things. You see this little quizzical look on his face. He kind of sometimes will tilt his head a little bit and kind of just stare at something. And you just wonder what's going through his little mind as he's thinking about things. He, he, he doesn't understand the world. Children don't understand the world. Toddlers don't understand the world, the way the world works. And they're not supposed to. They're toddlers. But there's coming a day when he grows up that he will understand so much that his understanding then won't even be comparable to his understanding now. The understanding that he'll have in adulthood will be so different than his understanding as a toddler. And yet, when he figures something out as a toddler, he gets us excited. I mean, here lately, he's really been getting good at animal noises. And some some of the animals, we don't even quite know how he learned them so well because we haven't really spent a whole lot of time on some of these animals. And he has this little animal book and he sits and he turns to the different animals and he points to them and he makes the sound that they make. And it, it, it's, I mean, it excites me. But if he was 45 years old, it wouldn't really excite me that much, would it? <laughs> what Paul is saying is that in this age, we are like children when it comes to our understanding of God. We are toddlers when it comes to our understanding of God. Even theologians who use words like infralapsarianism are toddlers when it comes to their understanding of God. We are hindered by the limitations of a child. And if you don't get anything, get this. No matter how mature you become in the faith, you are still just a child. MacArthur is a child. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a child. John Calvin was a child. We are children when it comes to our understanding of God. And that really doesn't say so much about our inabilities as it says about his bigness. We ought to remember that when we're tempted to become so puffed up and to think that we have just reached a level of excellency and we are just so much better than all those other Christians that don't know as much as we do. God, You know how God looks at that? He looks at that the same way we look at toddlers arguing over who can be first in line. When I was was two years old, I got pushed down two flights of concrete stairs because the girl behind me wanted to be first in line. And she wanted to hold the big red bouncy ball that I had. We were going out to the playground. And so she 
pushes me down a flight of concrete stairs. But how often do we, in our pride and in our envy, push other believers down a proverbial flight of concrete stairs because we think we're better, we're more deserving, God likes us more, and this is our right. In the same way that we would look at toddlers squabbling over being first in line and playing with a bouncing ball, it's the same way God looks at us when we squabble with other believers over trifles Mm -hmm. and pride. There's coming a day when we will grow up and we will put away childish things. That day doesn't happen in this age. But it does happen in the age to come. And our understanding then will be incomparable to our understanding now. I I really believe that I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to I'm going to be aghast at how little I knew in this life and how much I thought I knew in this life. Paul says in verse 12, this is his second illustration. For now, we see through a glass darkly. This glass is a a reference to a mirror. And it's not really darkly as much as it is blurry. We see through a blurry mirror. That's what he's talking about. To understand this, you need to ask the question, what kind of mirrors did they have in Paul's day? Well, they did not have pristine, picture-perfect glass mirrors. You know, as I was <laughs> as I was studying for this chapter, the thought dawned on me, you know, people that lived in Paul's day did not constantly look at themselves. Maybe that would help us in this selfie, social media, vain culture that we live in where we're just all the time staring at ourselves in a mirror. I mean, if you would have asked Paul to, to draw himself, he might have struggled a little bit because he never really had a clear picture of himself. Now, they, what did they have? Well, they had glass that was blurry. You think about uh, uh, those old carnival. They, they wouldn't have been that bad, but think about those old carnival games, you know, where you have the, the, the glass that's just not accurate. Or another thing that they would use is very finely polished brass, which would actually give you a better reflection than glass would in those days. But of course, you wouldn't have the color, Right? And so Paul is saying, we're looking through these blurry mirrors. That's that's how he describes our understanding of God. It really chops you down, doesn't it? I mean, when you think that you're, you're you're really something theologically, and then the Apostle Paul says, no, you're just looking at a blurry mirror. Paul is comparing the view of a first century mirror to the view that we have of God in this present age. In this age, we don't see God face to face. Our knowledge of God, this is another aspect of this mirror analogy, our knowledge of God is immediate. What do I mean by that? Well, again, we have to understand the the construction and etymology of these words. The word perfect, like I said, refers to completion. Well, immediate, we often think of happening really quickly, right? Well, really, the word immediate means without means. That's the definition, without means. In this age, we only see God and learn of God, and God only reveals himself through means. 
through, through creation, right? Through the Bible and the first century, through through spiritual gifts, through prophecies, through tongues. We don't have an immediate knowledge of God in this age. Now, again, thank God for the Bible. Because without it, without this means, we would have no way of knowing God in a saving way. So cherish your Bible. Read your Bible. Thank God for your Bible. But understand that even your Bible is a means to know God. It's impossible for us to know Him immediately. And think about it this way. Imagine you are in uh, you are in Germany and you are at a ski resort in southern Germany and you're you are in this room and you're looking through this this blurry window and you're looking at the Swiss Alps and you're looking at the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen, but you really can't see all of it. You can only see what you can see through this little window. That's what it's like to read Scripture in this age. You're in this room, and you you see this beautiful thing, but you see it through a window. In the age to come, you're no longer looking through the window. You're, You're out there. You're in it. You're walking around in it. You're dwelling in the midst of it. There's coming a day in which the immediate gives way to the immediate. There's coming a day in which the the in part gives way to the perfect when the childish gives way to the mature. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, he says we know God in part, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. On this day, we will be absolutely Blown away. There's no way to even anticipate what it will be like on this day to see God face to face. Church attendance, worship services, prayer meetings, conferences, scripture reading, that whets your appetite. But I don't think there's anything that can truly prepare us for what we will see on that day when we will see him and know him face to face. All of the most beautiful and wonderful revelations in this age will seem like dark shadows compared to the brightness of his revelation on that day. Let's tie this back into what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians. Why is he going into all of this? Because he's saying to the Corinthians, on this day, when you see God face to face, the gift of tongues will seem like a cheap toy. Nobody's going to be in heaven talking about, wow, the gift of tongues. Wow, prophecy. Wow, what a great sermon. You're going to see him face to face. Paul is illustrating for us what the perfect is in verse 10. Verse 10, the perfect, when we see him face to face, is the eternal state. It is the eschaton. 
Why? Because the thing that gives us face-to-face knowledge of God is actually seeing Him face-to-face. Praise God for the completion of Scripture. But the Bible does not give you a face-to-face knowledge of God. Praise God for spiritual gifts. But spiritual gifts do not give you a face-to-face knowledge of God. Praise God for preaching. Think If you had to, to rank the means of grace, preaching would be at the top of the list. That's why we orient our services around the preaching of the Word of God. But guess what my preaching cannot do? Nor any man's preaching cannot give you a face-to-face knowledge of God. It's a means. It's not face-to-face. To know God, even as we are known, does not mean that we're going to have an exhaustive knowledge of God. You'll never have that. Even in heaven, you'll still be learning about Him. It means that we will know God in the same way He knows us. Isn't that a wonderful thought? How does God know us? Right right now, how does God know you? He knows you face to face. You didn't write God a book so that he could know you. He wrote you a book so you could know him because he's transcendent and untouchable and high and holy and lifted up, but he just knows you face to face. But there's coming a day, and let me say this reverently, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, but there's coming a day in which we won't have need for this book. Not like we have need for it now. I won't be in heaven, closed off in my study, searching the scriptures to try to learn about God. Now, again, in this age, you better do that. You better get up in the morning. You better search the scriptures. Otherwise, you won't know Him. But in the age to come, I'm not going to be looking at my concordance, looking at cross-references, reading commentaries. Why? Because I'm going to be dwelling in His presence. The reformers and the Puritans, they used to talk about what they called the beatific vision, which is just a term that refers to the way in which we behold God. In this age, we have this beatific vision through the means of nature and scripture. But in the age to come, we behold him face to face. Before I married Abigail, I worked at a school in Sonoya, Georgia, and I had a desk and I had a computer, and next to my computer screen, I kept a picture of her on my desk. And I would go to work, and I would sit at my desk, and I would look at that picture, and I would think about what it would be like to be married to her. Well, now, at home, in my study, on my desk, I no longer have a picture of Abigail on my desk. I know, heartbreaking, right? But the reason why I don't have a picture of her on my desk is because I now behold her face to face. I live with her. I dwell in her presence. And if I want to try to learn something about her, I don't have to look at a picture. But you know what is at home on my desk? A Bible. And every day, I look at that Bible And I read the pages of that Bible and I think about what it will be like when I finally come to dwell in the presence of God. And you've heard me give this illustration before. There's coming a day 
in which you will set your eyes on the written word for the very last time. That's why you should take Bible reading seriously and preciously because you never know when the last time you'll read your scriptures will be. And you'll close your eyes in death and the very next thing you will see standing before you face to face will be the living word. And that, that, that vision, that revelation will be so much sweeter than anything you could have ever dreamed of having in this life. When we finally see God face to face, that won't be the end of our learning. That's the beginning of our learning. When the story of your life on earth comes to an end, it's only the end of the title page. You're just getting into it. It's the beginning of the ceaseless ages that we will spend in the very presence of God. So fourthly and finally, we have one more verse in this chapter, and I want you to see charity and its finality. Charity and its finality. In order to properly interpret verse 13, we have to ask a very important grammatical question. Notice he says, "...and now abideth faith, hope, charity." When Paul says, and now, is Paul talking about something chronological or is he talking about something logical? What do I mean? Well, Paul could be saying, so now, in terms of now in this age, abides faith, hope, and charity. But if that's what Paul means, then this verse is really out of step with the context of the passage up until now, isn't it? Because up until now, Paul's talking about the eschaton. He's talking about the eternal state. Rather, we should read this but now, or this and now, as a logical statement. Now, when you're talking with someone and you say, so then, in light of everything I've told you, that, that's what Paul is saying. He's concluding his remarks in verse 13. So then, in light of what I've just told you about the cessation of spiritual gifts, about the fullness of God's revelation in the age to come, about the validity and the, the persevering endurance of love, so then, in the age to come, will abide faith, hope, and charity. It's interesting that Paul mentions faith and hope. He hasn't talked about faith and hope much in this chapter. I think the reason is simple. Because in the New Testament, you will see these three graces, faith, hope, charity, mentioned together many, many times, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So it's difficult for Paul to even think about love without also thinking about faith and hope. And he says that all three of these things, faith, hope, and love, abide in the eternal state. Now, in some ways, will faith end? Will faith pass away? Well, Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in that sense, we won't need faith in heaven to help us believe in the things that we can't see, because in heaven, we'll see them. That's why we sing the song, And Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Right? But what is faith when we boil it down to its most essential component? To have faith is to trust, to trust God and his promises. And so I ask, will there ever come a time in this age 
or in the age to come when we won't trust God? (laughs) No, in fact, in heaven, we'll have a perfect faith. We'll have a perfect trust that we'll never doubt him again. So Christian, as you read your your Bible and as you read the promises and, and as you struggle, sometimes you have to struggle to believe what he said, to believe in his promises. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You struggle to believe that. The fight of faith. In heaven there will be no struggle. You will perfectly trust him for all eternity. Well, what about hope? What about hope? Hope is a faithful expectation of things to come. That's what hope is. Certainly, we need hope in this life. Right? We need hope in this life. But what about in heaven? Do we need hope in heaven? Well, that depends on what heaven is. If heaven is timeless, then there will be no place for hope because there won't be anything to look forward to. But if the eternal state is not timeless, and I don't think it is timeless, but if the eternal state consists of ceaseless, eternal, successive ages, that's a whole other sermon, by the way, to just define heaven as ceaseless, consecutive ages, then in addition to perfect faith, we will also have a perfect hope. What am I trying to explain to you? I'm trying to explain to you that heaven is not static. Heaven is an eternal progression of glory. In heaven, throughout the ceaseless ages, things just keep getting better and better. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we have plenty to hope in and look forward to. Because heaven will be an eternal increase of peace, knowledge, joy, and love. Maybe you're wondering, how could heaven get better? Think of a balloon. You take a balloon, you blow some air in it. Is the balloon full of air? Yeah. I don't know what kind of balloons you you guys blow, but the kind I blow. You blow some air in it, and you can say it's full of air. But can you blow more air into it? And, And what happens? The more air you put into it, the easier it becomes to blow up, right? When we sing Amazing Grace, and we sing that last stanza, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That means that in year 10,001 in heaven, you will know more about God and you will love God, and you will enjoy God more than you did on year 10,000. That means that in year 10,001, after being in heaven for 10 millennia, I can run up to Philip and I can say, look what I just learned about God. And he will say to me, I know, I just learned it too. This is awesome. And that will be our eternity. It will be our eternity. So as great as heavenly hope and heavenly faith is, Paul says, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is charity. I believe the reason why love is the greatest of these graces is because it is who God is. We don't say God is faith. We don't say God is hope. I might regurgitate the next time I hear someone say, God believes in you, 
Well, if God believes in me, he's going to be an atheist before too long. Because there's not much here to believe in. So we don't say God is faith or God is hope, but we do say, the Bible says, God is love. And so in heaven, as you eternally increase in love, you are eternally increasing in the reality of who God is as you are made into his image. Heavenly love is so far superior and greater than the love we have in this age. Heavenly love is always sincere. Never proceeds from impure motives. Heavenly love is perfect. No, it's, it's faultless. I love my wife, but I love her imperfectly. And I know I love her imperfectly because I still sin against her. But heavenly love will be perfect. Heavenly love is mutual and always reciprocated. Lori, in heaven, you don't have to corporal cuddle anyone. <laughs> because in heaven, we love perfectly and we are loved perfectly. Heavenly love is never hindered by jealousy. In, in heaven, you will be so perfected in love that you can see someone else who has a greater capacity for enjoying God than you do and you won't be envied by them and they won't be puffed up in pride. Heavenly love will do away with all the hostilities and all the divisions that we have in this life. In heaven, you will perfectly love the Christians you struggled to love on earth. You know those people that are just hard to get along with? Just kind of rub you the wrong way? No, nobody look around? The things that make them so annoying will be gone. And the things that make you so annoying will also be gone. I still don't know which of those two is the greatest miracle. But I do know that, that the people I struggle to love here, I'll perfectly love there. And that actually motivates me to try harder to love them here. Heavenly love has no end. It is ceaseless joy and tranquility. And whatever your life is characterized with now will determine the world you live in when this age comes to an end. If your life is characterized by an imperfect but a true Christian love, then you have hope to believe that you will one day dwell in a place of eternal perfect love. But if you're examining your heart this morning and you're, you're finding that you do not see this grace of love within you, you have no reason to believe that you're going to go on to dwell in a place of perfect love. So if that's you, you, you must cry out to the Savior and His Holy Spirit who, who gives us the grace of Christian love. Say, Lord, I, I want this love to be reality of my life. I want more of it in my life. Nothing better prepares and excites the Christian to dwell in that world of love than to be continually meditating upon it during this life. So let me close with a lengthy quote from Jonathan Edwards. This is from the last chapter, the last sermon that he preached from 1 Corinthians 13, Charity and Its Fruits. The title of this sermon was Heaven, a World of Charity. He says this, There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. 
There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give His only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that He shed His blood and poured out His soul unto death for men. There dwells the great mediator through whom all divine love is expressed toward men and by whom the fruits of that love have been purchased and through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all God's people. There dwells Christ in both his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on the same throne with the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love. And by whose immediate influence all holy love is shed abroad in the hearts of all the saints on earth and in heaven. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. Praise God. No access, no hindrance to this access to God as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love and there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyments and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. This is where we're headed. This is where Edwards is. And Edwards would say, this glorious paragraph, this last concluding statement in his sermon is just a part. It's a shadowy portrayal of the reality that he now dwells in. Are you going there, brothers and sisters? Are you going there? I pray that you are. Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the reality of heavenly love. This, this love that exists in heaven between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that has been poured out and shed abroad in our hearts. Oh Lord, may you prepare us and excite us for the future, for the eternal state, for the eschaton, when we shall dwell in this place that Edwards describes as a deluge of love. Father, we love you. We praise you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love one another more. That Christ may be honored and glorified in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.